You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Kassang and I, Niels Kastroblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Jim, it's great to be back with you this week. I can't believe we're heading into March already, tomorrow. How are you doing? Uh, well, we've had a bit of an Indian summer here in Chicago. Uh, you know, 70 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. Um, and uh, but So it already feels like spring here. Um, and, and markets kind of already feel like spring, too. Yes. I'm not sure if they're confused about the Christmas rally coming very early or very late, but it certainly has been some an interesting period, let's put it that way. Now, as always, when you're on, we have some great topics that we're going to be diving into. And we also have uh, a few questions where people would like your, your thoughts. Um, but before we dive into all of this, I... I'd like to step outside of the topics we're going to talk about and just maybe ask you sort of a little bit what's been top of mind on your radar maybe since we last spoke, which was very, very early January of this year, where we kind of peaked into 2024. But since then, outside the topics, anything that have sort of piqued your interest? Yeah, I mean, I think the big things are um, it's an election year and not just kind of what that means uh, from a bigger sense, but from a more micro sense, what that's meaning uh, for the Fed uh, and their choices, uh, what that means for interest rates in this environment, uh, and what that may mean for the broad path of, of uh, you know, how this thing eventually kind of ends. Um, you know, we've talked about blow off top, but all those things are beginning to connect here in an election year, and I think that's the big thing that's top of mind for me. Okay, fair enough, and we're definitely going to get into all of that. I wanted to mention one thing that has come across uh, my radar, at least uh, in the last few weeks, as I've been traveling around and meeting with clients and potential clients. And it's a topic that also uh, Bloomberg have uh, picked up on a few times, uh, not least, uh, I think today I saw another headline. And the topic is private credit. And what they wrote, uh, Bloomberg, was they say, the rise of private credit funds have been powered by a simple pitch to the insurers and pensions who manage people's money over the course of decades. The idea, invest in our loans and avoid the price gyrations uh, endemic to rival types of corporate finance. This elegant proposal has managed to transform a Wall Street backwater into a 1.7 trillion market. Now, central bank rate hikes over the past two years have strained the finances of corporate borrowers, making it hard for many uh, to keep up with them with their interest payments. Suddenly, a prime virtue of private credit, letting these funds decide what their loans are worth rather than exposing them to public markets, is looking like one of the greatest potential flaws. So I'm, I'm just curious whether this is something that you think about that you come up in your conversations, uh, because it's obviously been an incredibly popular strategy. Yeah, I mean, these are this is another symptom of the massive malinvestment. You keep interest rates at zero for long enough, and the starved, you know, masses who need yield uh, are increasingly willing to do things that are not rational in the long run. Um, in the short term, 
And I think, uh, yeah, private credit has grown dramatically over the last uh, several decades, particularly the last 10 years. And uh, much like private equity, uh, you know, these kind of longer duration, kind of not mark to market realities can can build and sit there investor uh, for a while. And we can skate past it, right? To be clear, if, if markets um, to revert and invert, you know, uh, all those those potential losses under the hood can revert and never, never become real losses. But if we keep going, and again, you and I have talked about the potential for this to be a more secular move, um, it's eventually it all becomes unsustainable. Um, and uh, I think that's just another symptom of it, uh, not to lump it in with everything else, but it is one of the places that is uh, particularly grown dramatically and particularly, uh, you know, it's everywhere. And, it, and it's in every major portfolio. It's being treated not as a risk asset as much as probably it should be. Yeah. It does surprise me, however, that there's still so much seem, seemingly appetite uh, for this stuff uh, at this stage. But anyway, let's uh, move on. Uh, of course, it is the last trading day of the month of February. So in terms of a trend-following update, let me just say, thank God we've got 29 days this year because momentum and trends have been very, very strong this year. So no, we're not getting any crisis alpha, but boy, are we getting some alpha, which just goes to show that trend followers don't need any trouble in equity markets to do well. In fact, the SockGen Trend Index looks like it's on course for the biggest monthly return since March of 2022. And from where I sit, it looks to me like it's a very broad-based, quote-unquote, rally, um, so to speak, where all sectors should more or less be profitable. But of course, where we have seen a few standout markets uh, and trends in those, such as Cocoa, 29% price move up in February, 126% up in the past 12 months. Japanese stocks up another 9.4% in February, up 45% in the past 12 months. Of course, U.S. tech stocks doing pretty well. Net gas down 16% in February, down 52% in the past 12 months. And grains, in particular the soy complex and corn, continues to be in a pretty strong downtrend. Now, it may not be a new all-time high for the SockGen Trend Index. We're going to be close, but it sure will be a new all-time high for some individual managers. My trend barometer uh, has picked up. It's going to close, or it closed yesterday at 50. So it is in positive territory, suggesting that CTAs are having a good environment. But it's probably more aligned with the shorter-term uh, trend index, uh, which is positive, but not nearly as strong. In terms of numbers, and these numbers are um, not as of yesterday, the 28th. They're not updated quite yet, but... Let's see where it all finishes. It's going to be close. Beat up 50, up almost 5% in Feb, up 6.12% uh, year-to-date. SockGen CTA index up 5.58 in February, up 6.66 for the year. SockGen trend up 7.25, up 8.6% so far this year. And the SockGen short-term traders index up 1.7% in Feb and up 80 point basis point now for the year. MSCI World up 3.66% as of yesterday, up 4.84% for the year. Uh, world Government Bonds down and again 1.04%. Uh, and the S&P 500 up 4.77% and up 6.5% so far this year.
All right, let's move on. Let's dive into uh, a couple of uh, top, uh, yeah, <laughs> topics, but questions I meant to say before we dive into the topics. Uh, this is a question that came in for you, Jem, from Rick. Uh, Rick writes, in late 2022, during one of your chats um, and on other interviews at the time, Jem noted that tech was broadly underrepresented as long-duration assets like tech and bonds had sold off significantly, presumably across the positioning landscape he surveys and he advocated getting long tech. Now to present day. Long-duration assets have been gobbled up in anticipation of six, seven rate cuts. This is a few weeks ago, of course. In an interview last week, and again, this email came in a couple of weeks ago, he suggested getting long what has not worked uh, of late. My question is, has positioning in tech now gone back uh, to the other side of the boat and reverse of late 2022? And then gold, oil, and the like have not worked recently, hence the question regarding long-dated calls on gold. Many thanks, Rick. All right, Jim, over to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a couple of things that we've begun to see that I think are important signs. Uh, one, uh, as we went through Feb OPEX, uh, we began to see the decay of a lot of the calls in the MAG-7 um, that had been put on. Uh, so as we kind of predicted in the couple of weeks leading into that, we thought we would see weakness. And the big question was coming out of that OPEX, right? Would we continue to see that broad weakness relative, again, relative weakness, not weakness at large? And we have. And now as we enter March OPEX, that that momentum, that general loss of momentum on a relative value basis and that broadening out, as you mentioned before, of performance tends to, given the high volatility that exists in these calls and the open interest, uh, lead to structural selling. So these are kind of those reverse bond and charm flows we talk about from dealers and uh, particularly in the periods leading into the OPEX. So March OPEX is a very big OPEX now. And we're about to enter into that last two-week period where these flows really matter more. And uh, so we believe not only what can, what we've seen really for now almost a month continued, but I think it could really, um, that that rebalance could accelerate in these two weeks uh, here. You know, that, that relative performance, once it gets going, kind of feeds on itself because of these types of uh, positioning flows. Um, so yes, I do, I, we call them for this in, in mid sorry, late January, and, and thought that that move would start to unwind relative, you know, um, at least on a relative basis. And we have seen that. We do think that will continue. And the more it happens, the more that can feed on itself. Um, so it's starting to get a little bit of momentum, which I think is important for these things. The all on those calls is still high. There's still a lot of open interest and adding open interest because people still are hopeful it'll you know get going again on a relative bit value basis. And, uh, it's a very unpopular call. It has been for the last month, but it's worked incredibly well. And, and that's always a good sign as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. All right. So the, the, here are some thoughts, um, thinking a little bit out loud, but also I think sort of questions, topics that has come in uh, since we last spoke that I just want to sort of uh, give you a chance to to comment on. You and I have discussed in the past that there's been a lot of media attention on the zero day option stuff. And I think lots of investors wonder how it affects the overall market in longer dated volatility products, say more than 30 days, as in a sense, 30 days is not a very long period, only if you compare it to zero day 
so to speak, and sort of the the, the sort of the the, the longer day Deval products and the VIX, kind of just sort of summarizing what you maybe what you see, what you continue to see, or maybe you're seeing something different uh, since we last spoke a couple of months ago in terms of of their impact on what's going on in your markets. Yeah, zero DTE is a magnifier, right? We don't need to turn it into anything more than it is. It is the exact end of the distribution where the the size of the gamma and the uh, the effects per you know on a daily basis at that moment are greater than any other product, right? And because of that, um, it has the ability to dramatically reduce and increase volatility. Um, and so what that does is it changes the distribution of how these things move. They become much more disjointed. Um, and uh, they can be at one point very, very uh, volatile. can be very pinned. And then once volatile events happen, it can become very volatile. So that magnifier, I think, is the key point. Right now, everybody kind of sees that as, oh, well, zero DD are vol compressing, right? But it is as equal parts volatility increasing in the right environment. And, and it just creates fatter short-term tails. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean it increases long-term tails. I said short-term tails. And we've talked about this. There's been a, a decent amount of movement from more 30-day type hedges to zero DT, um, even 60-day and 90-day to zero DT. And we've said this before, but you know, there's a reason the words long-term were in long-term capital management, right? Long-term capital management was a problem because they were stuck in assets that were marked to market that just got worse and worse until the losses were so big that nobody could get out. 2008 was a great example. You know, the big problem in the bull markets then were variant swaps out five years, 10 years, right? And they were so, people were stuck and the losses became so big because the amount of vega in it that they went to, un, you know, incredible, uh, you know, six, I think it was 10 year vol traded uh, over 60 implied ball at the end of, in March of 2009. So, the good thing about open interest in those things moving to zero DTE is you can have a very short-term crisis, but if there's less of this other exposure, structurally maybe there's less, you know, bigger potential for an implosion in the vol market longer term. So really, again, it's reflexive. The more the more open interest there is in a zero DTE in the shortest time frame, the quicker a move can happen, the more likely you are to get a very short-term crash. But because it wipes off you know, get comes off the table the next day and is resolved, you're less likely to have a bigger, longer-term structural problem um, that then needs to be resolved. You're kind of substituting one problem for another and, and you're changing the distribution due to the, kind of the positioning. Now, the, ca the caveat to all that is there may be enough bigger structural issues outside of the bond markets that all you need is a is a crash in a very short period to 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 lay all the other kind of bombs on fire, uh, you know, all the, all the other hidden malinvestment that we talk about and other issues, we were to get a 20% crash, right, in, in a day or something crazy like that, right? Um, obviously, you know, you would begin to see a lot of the other bigger issues boil to the top 
And those could be a bigger problem. So it could be the spark that really kind of, uh, like the initial explosion that could set off a lot of other explosions, um, I, I, in my view. Um, but again, that, that doesn't mean that bigger explosion ultimately, much like it did in those other uh, scenarios I mentioned, comes from or is, is you know, a primary thing in, in the market going forward after that initial kind of uh, issue. So um, at the end of the day, I've mentioned this before, but the biggest risk to zero DTE that nobody talks about is the fact that you can't head zero DT with anything but zero DT. It's a closed circuit, uh, much like GME was a closed circuit and ANSI, you know, was a closed, you know, cycle. When you're in something like that, uh, you know, it is a momentum machine by definition. And it just takes uh, one big trade to cascade um, something. And, and the SIBO you know, has been very vocal about how well things are very balanced in the zero DT market. They're consistently balanced. They're consistently balanced because market makers have to hedge zero DT to zero DT. Um, and the real question is, well, what happens in that period where it's imbalanced and they can't get it back? And uh, and that's a big threat. And so that's that's how we need to think about zero DT. That's the reality of what it is. Uh, it's not as simple as, oh, it's vol compressing or it's vol accelerating. It's it, right now it's ball compressing because that's working and it's kind of a closed loop and that works that way, but it can very, very quickly be the exact opposite of that. Okay. Two follow-up questions there, Jim. First of all, uh, am I right in saying that zero DC, you don't actually even have to margin your trades because it's happens on the same day on top of, as you said, you can't hitch it. You are correct. Uh, that is, uh, officially the regulatory line. They are making changes as we speak. And starting to do intraday margining. They okay. only do it though in the middle of the day. So again, it's very <laughs> disjointed, okay. right? Now they've kind of cut the problem in half, but it's still a big problem. Like well, at um, least you have to be solvent at lunchtime, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. Fair enough. So the, the, you know. the other thing that sort of kind of springs to mind when I hear you talk about this, uh, and I'm not sure I fully understand all the consequences. Obviously, it's not my Uh, it's not really the market that I operate in. But, so a few years ago, vol funds became very popular. Back then, it was probably more long vol, but obviously we, that was after the short vol funds blew up. Then long vol funds became popular. And, and, and now, of course, you should have just you know kept selling options and you've been fine. But I guess what I'm trying to ask you is that what we, at least what I thought of being kind of a, normal relationship between, say, VIX and S&P, which I think to a large extent you could say existed for quite a while. That seems to have changed from what you say in the sense that norm sometimes it can be compressing, sometimes it can be, you know, increasing volatility. So because we now have these instruments, is it do, do, could we even talk about the fact that things will never be normal if we define normal as prior to two years ago or something like that? Is it a new normal? That's a popular uh, term. Yeah, I, I, I want to say something that, you know, you hear all this talk about, is the VIX broken? And that's basically what you're asking. Well, the correlation, the, the correlation in particular, that's yeah. That's what they mean. Yeah. Right? Just when to make sure, yeah, yeah, people understand right? it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Absolutely. And my answer to that is, the VIX was never right. The VIX is a very poor measure of market dynamics. The reality is vol 
going up into a decline um, is something that happens should happen after a certain breaking point in the market, right? If all if if vol does if the market does go down by a certain amount, right, then vol should go up. Similar to actually, if the market goes up by a certain amount, vol should go up. So it's really this issue of skew in the marketplace, and there is structural reasons for skew based on supply and demand. The whole world is long. We've talked about this a million times. But then there's the realized historical move in ball, right? They think, what should it actually be worth? That's a different question than, uh, you know, supply and demand, did supply and demand dictate that it should be, should be priced where it is. And what we've seen really for several years now is that, you know, market moves up are often more volatile than market moves down. And on a realized basis, you know, more recent, if you look at more recent data, there's no real justification for skew on a, on a historical basis, right? Uh, the real, on a shorter term, look, the reason that it exists again is because the world is long and ultimately the real tale that everybody, you know, where there, where there is panic, everybody knows, look at 87, look at all this, I think is the downside, right? That's a place you can lose all demand, right? You're never going to lose all supply because people are long and at some price, they'll always sell on the upside. But the point here is that realized vol has changed dramatically. A lot of that is due to the gamma effects from calls and people speculating in calls and the squeezes that we see there. Um, a lot of the other embedded structural reasons that that uh, you know markets tend to go up that, and they can accelerate up. And uh, you know we're in an environment where I think there's more, I guess, efficiency to some of this, right? And uh, those things make make it so that when the market goes down, that Vol doesn't actually go up despite it sliding. That though has also been more a function of people being hedged more, right? Paying more attention to these risk factors, people using options more. And that hedging, which comes and goes as we've talked about, uh, has led to vol compression on the downside and the VIX not working as well. So some of it is based on the time we've been in. Some of it is based on structural secular trends. But we've been in a particularly like kind of two, three year period where it just doesn't pay to own skew. And that just means that that the VIX doesn't work like it used to work. And it shouldn't because it's not profitable, right? To to own skew. I talk a lot about fixed strike vol, right? And I think that's such an important thing for people to understand that you know the VIX is a measure of floating vol. It, it assumes that that you know all options are priced the same. There is a natural skew. Right, because of supply and demand in the market, and that skew has been selling. That skew has been an incredibly profitable trade um, in recent history. It is not always an incredibly profitable trade. It is a carry trade that works very well uh, in ninety-five percent of scenarios. But you know, in some sing slow single-digit number of occurrences, blows everybody up. Right, much like most carry trades, and uh, we haven't seen for a very, very long time that blow up. You know, really happen. Um, I guess 2020. I take it back. Not a very, very long time. At least since 2020. And um, and so that is that is uh, you know. Instead, we're seeing fixed strike ball come down very consistently to the downside, and be more increasingly supported to the upside as well. So a much more real path that is flat. Um, and that's why you really need to understand, look at what's happening to fixed strike ball and, and what that means. Um, uh, broadly, um, you know, the 
fear index, that label for the VIX has always been wrong. Um, and, and the real fear index is fixed rate ball. This was awesome. I appreciate that. Great stuff. Now, um, you just mentioned that it's been a few years since we had a big blow up. But I think the next topic that we're going to be talking about could be the uh, one thing that could actually bring us back to that period of time. Because we are going to talk about something that uh, we've talked a little bit about in the past um, but, uh, when we try and look into the crystal ball. And of course, in 2024, it's not just a normal year. It's a year where I think, and this is probably from things I've heard, that there are more elections around the world than we've ever seen before happening at the same time or something like that. But in any event, one of them, and that's a very important one, perhaps the most important one, happens on the 5th of November, and it's, of course, in your homeland of the US. So you have looked at this topic. You mentioned that already in our introduction. So I'm going to give you the stage and talk a little bit about some of the findings, and then I will come back with a few curveballs for you. Yeah, I think the big idea here, and I've talked about this, but not enough, right? This is something that as we move forward here into March becomes increasingly top of mind, is that we're in a very populist wave, right? That's a core underpinning reason we believe we'll have secular inflation and, and you know, structural inflation. And it's, we've been saying this for three years, right? It's something that is... is um, a core thing that people aren't understanding between kind of core and structural inflation and those pressures, right? Now, where inflation is becoming untied to a great extent from GDP specifically. And because of that populism, we see during other periods like this that we've seen, when we'll take the 60s and 70s as a proxy, we've seen a lot more government involvement, right, during those periods and a lot more importance to what government's doing during those periods. Um, when there's populism and people want to, you know, have a rebalancing of inequality and all these things, it, things don't come linearly, right? In 2020, it was election year. Guess what? We got a massive fiscal response. Everybody will, will, will put, you know, will earmark COVID for that, right? But the reality is, if that didn't fall in an election period, we probably wouldn't have gotten as much fiscal response. And I think that's an important thing to understand. So, if you go look at the last periods where we saw populism during election years. You know, everybody broadly knows election years are positive for markets. It's a, you know, you want to be very careful in those periods, but they don't really dive below the surface and, and think about what type of election years are, are more uh, are, are better and more more productive for markets. And uh, you know, we've often talked about the 68 to 82 period or 64 to 82 period. And uh, talked about how markets nominally went nowhere in the S&P, went really nowhere 14 years, lost 70% of its value in real terms. But if I told you that all the elections during that period were positive, and not just positive a little bit, like they were all more more than double-digit positive, that'd be kind of eye-popping, uh, right? Considering that the market actually went nowhere over that whole period. And that's exactly what happened in the U.S. starting in 64, 64, 68, 72, 76, 1980. Every single one of those years was a positive year. And the average performance in those years was 20.56%. Think about that. In a period where the market went nowhere. Um, now, you can take 64 out still. You've actually even higher than that average performance. I'm just trying to get a broader data set during that populist period. So populism 
tends to lead to fiscal spending. It leads to fiscal spending, not linearly. It leads to more fiscal spending in those election years because the electorate, you know, is voting. And guess what? The people making the policy, <laughs> you know, set the bacon uh, on those years. Um, uh, so 100% of years, 20.56. In the other uh, election years, um, throughout the whole 1926 to, uh, I think the, to 1960, uh, 2016 was the data set we were looking at here. Uh, but 2020 was a positive year as well. Um, on all those other years, uh, the returns were 5.7%. So not nearly as positive, right? You know, this is talking about the whole data set. You take these little populist periods out. Yeah, it's positive. It, it wins, uh, you know, a little below average positive uh, of all years. Um, and it wins kind of, kind of at a regular 75%, um, a little bit higher than average there, but very ho-hum years. And I think that's a big point. Populism is important and elections are important when populism matters. That's the big takeaway for me. And guess what? We're in a very populist period. 2020, even though it was volatile in early March, was a very positive year. That was still up 21% for the year. People forget that, right? Um, almost in line with that average of 20.56 year. Here we are going into election year. You know, people are like, we can't go any higher. Well, you know, it's a real thing. And it's not just a real thing because uh, it matters broadly. It's because this is the year you're going to get a lot of fiscal spending and a lot of things that are that are likely to goose the market. Um, and you, you could argue more than most because it's a particularly contentious year. The other thing I'll highlight during this period is very few eight-year presidents, right? During populist periods, you have a lot of turnover of presidents. Um, why? Because people are unhappy. Populism is kind of a disgruntled time. People aren't kind of kumbaya coming together. People, you know, being an incumbent isn't necessarily as much of an advantage as it is during other years. Um, you know, we had, uh, you know, uh, Johnson, Nixon. Nixon was there for two terms, kind of, because then he got kicked out otherwise, right? Uh, and then we had Carter until we got to Reagan, right? And so it was a very, uh, you know, if you look at history, it's an outlier in terms of, uh, you know, eight-year sessions, uh, very, very, very few. So that's also not kind of question. Question for you: Does it matter whether it's a Republican or Democrat that wins uh, for the markets? It it does. Uh, Republican years tend to be more positive um, broadly. If you look at this populist period, though, Nixon and Reagan, I guess, being the two positives, um, it was just slightly more positive during this period. Uh, during Nixon, it was an average of about fifteen percent, as opposed to twenty. One we were saying, and during Reagan, the one election we had for Reagan during that period was thirty-two percent. Um, so I would say at the end of the cycle, when things are ready to kind of start, you know, where you have a, an ability to come in with supply-side economics like Reagan did, that's a very positive, and that's a very positive going forward as well. Um, the question is, uh, you know, are we about to enter a supply-side-driven Republican presidential? Cycle, uh, I, I don't think Trump is uh, that kind of, we'll see, maybe it is. Um, maybe, and that's what people are hopeful for. Um, you know, if he's a true Republican in that sense, it's positive for markets. Um, but if he's a populist president and we're talking about more protectionism, and we're talking about more labor rights and pandering to the, you know, the rusted out cities in middle America, maybe he's actually a Democrat, right? Um, and so those are the big questions. But if you look at the data, it bears out that you know, supply side economics is better for markets. Doesn't mean it's better for the people. It's better for markets, and uh, and and the returns 
rationally play that out. But election year is also rationally play out that there's more spending and that that cyclical support in these periods is very, very positive. And that's, you know, the data speaks very loudly here if you look at it closely. And I just think that's very, very important to understand. You mentioned, Jim, that during this period that there was a lot of turnover in terms of presidents. Let me throw in this curveball that I mentioned. I wanted to bring in the third candidate that nobody talks about, and that's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And again, I don't know the technicalities, whether he can just actually get on the ballot or not, or whether, I, I, I don't know. But I was listening to a very recent podcast with one of our previous guests, Pippa Malmgren, who is, of course, incredibly well connected into the world of U.S. politics herself and also her father. And she was saying, and I have no reason to doubt her, but I don't want to make it political. I also want to make sure that's clear. But she was saying that Robert Kennedy is polling incredibly well. In fact, that some polls that she tracks have him neck and neck with Biden and Trump. And that they that, and that he's drawing about an equal amount of voters from Trump and Biden. Now, she's saying, and again, I don't want to make this political, but she's saying that one of the reasons why we hear nothing about him in the press is that he has been very vocal about the fact that if he wins, one of his strong views is that pharmaceutical companies will be banned from advertising, which, by the way, is the norm in most countries except for the US and New Zealand. So that doesn't strike me as a very radical view, but it's radical if you look at it from a network point of view that is being funded mostly by pharmaceutical companies, I guess. Anyways, so she goes on essentially to say that the real risk that she sees is that you could end up with a hung electoral college because, according to the U.S. Constitution, you have to get 270 uh, electoral college votes in order to become president. But if it's a pretty hung race between three, none of them may get to that number. I don't know. I mean, you're obviously closer to this than I am. I don't know if you have an opinion. I don't even know if you wanted to want to speculate about if that really was the case, what happens from a, from a volatility point of view and so on and so forth. Probably net positive for Democrats if that was to happen. Because ultimately, the way the system works is it forces a coalition, right? I think there's a better chance of a coalition on the left than there is on the right. So I think that would be my biggest takeaway. I do want to make a bigger statement that's specific to the hung. You know, okay, that'll yeah, create, do that. trust me, a lot of turmoil in between. Uh, you know, there will be, uh, no matter who wins this race, you know, there are going to be some very, very unhappy people. Um, that's just the water we're currently swimming in. We've been talking about this for like four years now, that this is going to continue to be the case. But I think the bigger, more important thing that very few people are talking about is, again, if we go back and look at this history from the 70s and 60s, you have, until Reagan, you have a very young, you know, starting with Kennedy, you have a very young kind of vibrant kind of politician relative to history. Enter the populist periods, which is who, where's the populism where you and I have been talking about coming from? It's coming from millennials. It's this wave of, 
It almost always does, right? They're the labor and the distribution uh, that eventually says enough is enough. I've gone through 40 years and, you know, dramatically underperforming. That anger, that vitriol, not to mention that energy that is comes from that grassroots you know, political movement um, at, on the, from the youth is what generally drives these cycles. And so that tends to drive younger politicians. Right now we're sitting at, you know, this, the oldest two kind of uh, combined, you know, ages of, of candidates we've ever seen. And it's both sides don't like that, right? It's, it's not a one side thing. So we are, we're definitely setting up for a young political person to come in and speak a different language, right? Speak directly to this populace. And that's what Robert, I think, I think you can argue a lot of other things about his brand and whether, you know, it fits or it's popular. Um, it's not really him. If you ask me, right. He doesn't speak particularly well. He, you know, you can go through all the aesthetics and policy things, but what he does well is he's young and he speaks to the people in a very young, different way. And I think that's what people are, you know, that's why he's polling so well. Yeah. Um, I would say he's so younger. I, I'm not sure I would younger, call him young, yeah, but he's yeah, very fit. He's very fit. So, so we can, he, he has that on his side. That's, for that's sure. the point, right? Yeah. It's, it's less about age and perception yes. of youth and energy. A hundred hundred percent. Um, so, uh, things of rhyme again, you know, Kennedy is actually the one who kicked off the populism, right? Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the reason we had the uh, Great Society program is not because of Johnson who passed. That was Kennedy's program. It, it got passed because we had our own COVID, in a sense, our own kind of reason for that populism to take hold, and that was Kennedy's assassination. Um, and that really allowed Johnson to get both sides together to pass a massive fiscal response and get that wave going at that time. So, um, yeah, just interesting parallels, something to be thoughtful of. Again, I think people are like, oh, how can we be dealing both sides? The most popular thing is that everybody agrees that these politicians are too old and they're stuck speaking the wrong language. They're not thinking about things. And then more millennials every four years come to political dominance. There, we're going to hit a tipping point where it, the vacuum is there. It's ready. You know, again, everybody talks about Trump as the cause and a lot of these things. We've been very clear. He's a symptom. He's been, he was a person who saw the marketing opportunity of, of taking the right left and and really marketing a populist message and was able to capitalize on it. There's an opportunity here. Somebody, maybe it's Robert Kennedy, is going to come in and fill that void. It's a matter of when. Yeah. Do you already see it in terms of volatility pricing out in around November time? Do you already see some? Yeah. November is already priced at every election cycle for the last sure. several. We've seen, uh, you know, increasingly higher uh, volatility price. So yeah, we, we're, we're already seeing that in my opinion, it's actually still cheap, but that's a whole nother conversation. That's a whole nother um, conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're bound to get a, a crazy reaction no matter what happens. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. Let's stay with the, uh, shorter term and then move on to the medium term. You wanted to talk a little bit about the flow as, as you normally do. Um, what's going on there? Yeah. And, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about March OPEX, right? Here we, here we go into a big quarterly OPEX. You know, we we highlighted uh, before the op potential at the beginning of this March cycle for a tail risk. Uh, the, uh, the other side of that is, uh, and we were very clear then as well, is that what happens in big open interest quarterly OPEXs is you get a changing of the distribution. The expected values don't move, 
right? But what happens is the probability of an up move goes up and the magnitude of the, of the left tail goes up. Um, we saw a crash from the March OPEX cycle. We've talked about this a bunch, right? In 2020, uh, right? Day to day, it was a 30% crash. That's that fat left tail that exists in big quarterly OPEXs. But if you get past that first week or week and a half, and we've been very vocal about this, you have to be constructive um, because the last two weeks become that that acceleration of buyback of all those uh, those the deltas against those hedges, and we're seeing that. So this is the whole beach ball underwater kind of meme that I put out there all the time, right? This is the bottom chart flows that accelerate during this period of relative strength. Now markets are more these these flows, by the way, are immutable. Like they have to come along. Now markets are more aware of it. There may be some front running of it that happens, et cetera. But these periods uh, invariably end up finding, you know, any sell-off provides support. And that's the part of the distribution that gets muted during as you get into these last periods. So there's a lot of delta buyback during this, this period. Now, does that make mean the market's going up big? Not necessarily. If the market's been up big and kind of front run this, and now it becomes kind of beach ball underwater. So the point is that beach ball underwater, that buyback will keep coming. You know, you couldn't get a stair step down. But that mean, you know, that volatile move to the downside is going to be very hard as you approach markets because the scale and size of the buyback is huge. The corollary to that, which I think is actually even more important, is that as we go through this period, March, the Cooley OPEXs are very high in pricing because the demand for them is higher relative to the expirations around. So it's a very easy, and most market makers and most uh, people who are warehousing risk will sell that high ball and go buy what's cheap. It's normal, right? You sell what's expensive, you buy what's inexpensive. So structurally, there'll be long volatility behind, meaning in April or in the weeks after, you know, March, against a high March OPEX. Well, what happens is that March OPEX decays and comes back down in blood. They decay longer and longer implied volatility, right? And as that happens, and that's what we call VOMA and VEDA, right? VOMA is the, the you know, what happens to your uh, vol exposure per 1% you know, move in vol. And what happens, VEDA is time. So what happens to your vol exposure per movement time? And what's happening is after these big coleopexes, there's a natural decay longer in implied volatility to the market, to dealers. And ultimately that is vol compressing uh, into that window because every day they need to, they get longer while they need to sell. Right, so this is kind of, um, you know, as vol declines and slides down on a kind of a a, a declining kind of a contango, um, it it also they get longer. So uh, all of that ultimately means that you're likely to get some vol compression in these windows, and it's likely to also trim the downside potential exposure as more and more vol gets gets sold into these windows as well. Again, this is a very short term, two week, three week phenomenon. But it is also what it tends to be supportive. If you get through this window of kind of this February, March cycle where there's weakness, that can be very now constructive again. You know, vols well supplied. Uh, you know, we may digest this period. Sure, we may go up. But regardless, as you go forward, now you have a vol supply that is, is healthier and more, allows for a more kind of continuation of a rally. And that's why we've been very clear. Like there's a, there was a window here for a tail. We rallied really fast. It was, you know, he rallied uh, over 20% in a kind of a three month, you know, three and a half month window. You know, if there was a time for it to, to give it back and to get some weakness early in the season, that was, this was it. 
Uh, but if it didn't, right, here you are getting vol supply, uh, and we already talked about the election year, right? So um, hard time as we get to later in the year for these things to kind of crack. And that's why, uh, you know, you have to start becoming more constructive um, broadly. Um, and, and again, that's why these little micro weekly periods actually really matter to the path and what's happening. And they, you can pick out, okay, this is more likely to be this path now because we've got through this period. Um, and I think that's very important to prediction and understanding those short-term flows. Because of the vol compression in the SPX that we're also seeing in this period, we're seeing dispersion pick up again, right? Uh, when we were seeing market up vol, market up vol, we're seeing expanding breadth and less slightly less uh, great dispersion. Vol compression here over the last week, week and a half, guess what? Or really two weeks, you're starting to see uh, a bit more um, of that dispersion. We already talked about call exposure in the NASDAQ, right? And the decay of that. Well, if you're seeing that weakness in the NASDAQ, right, relative on a relative basis because of those selling flows and vol and the S&P is pinned, well, what's going to happen? You got to see the other stops start to perform, right, by definition. And not just perform a little bit. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a real pickup in the Russell, and a lot of other kind of underloved things that haven't worked for a while because the S&P is, you know, is pinned and the calls are decaying in, in the, the max seven. Um, you're really starting to see a, a, a pretty serious rotation. Like we mentioned before, that can start to feed on itself, which I think is very important. So that's the short-term pic picture. I do think it's important to, again, we talked about the election year, but also the more that this vol compression happens because of fixed strike vol, that upside call starts to get really cheap again. So if we fast forward in two weeks, you better believe you're going to be looking at a call, you know, two months out uh, or a month and a half out uh, that's, 10% out of the money that's on a really ridiculously low vol, given that realized vol we've seen in this last year, in the last nine months. Um, and those will become an incredible buy again. Um, and, and, you know, then you'll get to see market on vol again. It's what we're going to see probably after that. So, you know, after this period of, of compression and kind of digestion um, and kind of rotation, um, you know, comes the setup for another market of vol. And the bigger, be clear the bigger medium term trend in the trade given the potential upside in an election year like this as well is to see a real market up vol up scenario um, that can go on all year and that's one of the better trades you'll see all year and so the real trade is to buy those long dated calls and not to hold them short stock on their own but really fund them with other other things that will then uh, get you into cheaper and cheaper calls like that that will then pay out as we rally again and I think that's really the the, the trade and the way to uh, approach it. You know, the Fed has told you what they're doing. They're, they're in a stagflationary, in a box. They don't have many options. They have to choose. They have to choose. Are we going to deal with the inflation that keeps coming in hot? Are we going to uh, deal with the slowing economy and, and try and stimulate? And uh, it's all about incentives, right? I think uh, last December we got, they showed their hand. And their hand is, uh, you know, gun to the head. They're going to choose growth in an election year. And that's exactly what the data tells you. They do always anyway, and they're going to do it more than ever this year. Um, and, and, you know, that's accentuated by the fact that Powell's job is probably kind of uh, going to change if, if uh, somebody gets elected, um, not to mention that there's risk for the institution with that broadly. And if he's seen as a, uh, you know, a, a, a savior for the institution of the Fed, um, he's incentivized to, to choose growth. Um, and uh, an object in motion tends to stay in motion, and that's what ultimately leads to this kind of blow-off taunt that we're likely to see. So that's the flows, you know, uh, as it currently stands, short-term and medium-term, and 
and how I think we need to be thinking about this. Okay, fair, good, great, excellent. Now, I mentioned earlier we're recording on the last day of February. And of course, I think as probably most of the people listening to us are aware of, it has been a month where the S&P 500 has not only topped 5,000, it has, uh, for the first time, it has continued to rise and made quite a few all-time highs. Now, with this bullishness and risk on, we've also seen a bit of a déjà vu when it comes to meme stocks and the shares SMCI, Super Microcomputer, hit a new all-time high amidst a record high in option trading volume around the middle of February. Moreover, implied volatility of that stock or the options uh, with a one-year ex- uh, expiration has been above 80%. And all of that reminds, I think, a lot of people of GameStop, AMC, and those heydays. What does this tell you when you see this uh, going on? It's a market that is not balanced at the end of the day, right? Uh, you give, it's all about incentives always. If you give people the opportunity uh, to potentially make gazillions of dollars to the upside and there is an embedded buyer that will protect some of your downside, right? Um, they're going to take it. And, uh, you know, what happened with, you know, GameStop and AMC and all these meme names before was that the retail investor was so one-sided that there was a, a lean and the institutions can push it out in front of them and know that they're still going to buy, that they were price insensitive. And there's a price insensitivity here, uh, a buying kind of mentality that um, that creates a momentum machine. And once that's in place, your odds of winning versus losing on going along are just higher. And uh, it won't go on forever, but it's a good trade. And so everybody's going to take it. And so, yeah, you don't get in the way of that. I think that we've, we saw the GameStop, right? We, that, that story has been well told. You know, who's going to short that? No one, right? So the, the trade is to... to to play it and to play it with leverage and to, to, you know, take the takings well, the, you know, take is good. And then, you know, once it does finally break in that momentum, she, you know, when it breaks to short it, but that may not happen for a year, uh, you know? Um, and, and so for now that you don't get in the way of those uh, narrative names. And again, I think the big point again, to, to talk about the zero DT and to tie that in is when you're a part of that distribution where you can't hedge that exposure with anything else really, it can go anywhere, uh, and and it can just keep going. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, it's not a fundamental story. I don't think we can look. Everybody tries to uh, you know put rationality on valuations of these things. I mean, how, are we going to do that? I mean, then do we just watch what happened with GME? And it's like, there's nothing to do with rationality. It has everything to do with buyers versus sellers. And um, and that's, uh, you know, once it gets going, especially when options are involved, the, the amount of leverage and, you know, it, it's too big and you get cascades. So, uh, if everybody's pushing one way, you better be on that train. I think that's the, the big takeaway. If you haven't watched it yet, Jim, the next time you take a flight and they have a movie, which at first sight, when I saw it on, on one of my recent flights, it said dumb, dumb mom, money. And I thought, no, that must be one of those silly films. And then I just read a little bit further down. It was actually 
the movie made about GameStop. And I have to say, surprising, I would say the, the movie was better than I thought. So uh, I don't know if you watched it. Otherwise, um, I haven't watched it yet. Uh, I, I'll be flying soon, and I, I do intend to watch it. But uh, it's just a great story, right? The whole thing's a great story. It's, uh, but it is almost like Dumb and Dumber in real life too. So it, it you know, there, there. <laughs> it's just, uh, but, but there's a, there's a reality to this, right? And that's, that's what people are figuring out that, that you know, you can, you can get together legally with other people and just say, hey, we're doing this, and, and go and just push it and and at that point it's a supply and demand imbalance and it's a momentum machine and that's what happened and that's what's that's what will continue to happen unless the the structure of the regulators change something yeah speaking about supply and demand u.s debt you wanted to talk a little bit about uh u.s debt what you think might be coming the impact on the dollar potentially um but clearly there's a lot of supply of that at the moment there seems to be okay demand for it still but what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, we talk short-term flows. We talk medium-term flows. I, let, let's talk a little bit long-term, right? Great. Um, I think one of the most controversial things that I'm saying out there publicly um, and that most big investors are completely out of line with, and most people absolutely despise, and I get the most hate mail about, is uh, the, my point that in any reasonable amount of time that matters, meaning 20, 30, 40 years, uh, the U.S., Ultimately, the U.S. debt doesn't matter. Um, everybody's pointing to that this cycle is different because the U.S. has unsustainable debt, that they can't allow interest rates to go higher. My view uh, is, you know, all you have to do is look at what Nixon did in unpinning us from gold in 1971 to see that the value of the dollar has nothing to do with its, you know, actual that like fundamental value in it. it has to do with power. Um, if you were to go analyze that period very closely, what you'd see is that at first everybody lost, said, oh, wow, you know, the U.S. is stuck. They're unpinning the value. You have to have to basically devalue the dollar. And then for a second, the dollar got really, really weak. And then it rallied. And it, uh, you know, relative to the price of gold, it was a massive bullish trade. And that was the first debt jubilee. We really saw here, like the old, I guess to date, the only real debt jubilee we've seen in the U.S. Well, people don't call it that. That's what it was. That moment is so important because it created the fiat world that now allows the Federal Reserve to be dominant. And it's what created the last 40 years, the ability for the Fed to be so dominant, create the last 40 years of a monetary policy cycle and the inequality and everything that we've seen. But it also made very clear to everybody that power is all that matters. The exorbitant privilege is quite simply the fact that, you know, if you're powerful enough, uh, you can tax much like kings and queens. And again, very unpopular. Feels awful for me to even say, right? This isn't specific to the US, it's specific to every other country and every other place in the world since time has begun, is that you can tax everybody however much you want because you protect them because you they depend on you because they get to play in your economy because you, every single reason now eventually right that people become sick of that and uh, eventually they get together and they you know if you're not being a good benevolent dictator in some way right they they come and kick you out um but 
in history at least, there's no real example of that happening right? Uh, you know, every empire since beginning of time has kind of faded into obscurity until there was a, a clear alternative. Um, and then that, that power struggle kind of, they, they coexisted and then the other one kind of went away. Um, and, and that happens over the course of centuries, if not millennia. And, uh, and so I think to sit here and say, oh, the end of the Talar is nigh, this debt is unsustainable. Um, I think it is, uh, you know, there will be a point to be clear where the incentives are to another to believe that I believe a hundred percent, but the consequences of it will be almost nothing for the United States at least. The consequences will be what the consequences were when the Nixon took us off the dollar. I know the dollar, the uh, gold, sorry, I took the dollar of gold. It will be that the dollar will actually rally. The dollar will ultimately rally when we, when we hit the button, when the Fed goes, we're buying all the debt, beep, and the debt's gone, the dollar will rally. That tells you all you need to know. And we know that also from just looking at Japan, they did it much slower because they're not the U.S. They were backed by the U.S. That's where they were able to do it. But they monetized their debt. We don't look at their, what is it, 275% debt to GDP because it doesn't matter because they own their own debt. They will eventually beep, hit the buttons and it will go away. So I think that's the big takeaway. Um, and I think all the talk about that, I think, is in the long run overdone now. We will get a ton of volatility between now and then, uh, because not everybody thinks the way I do. Uh, that you know, there is a there is a, a lot of players who uh, it will be clearly when that debt, debt jubilee, which I think is inevitable, eventually comes, which could be in ten years. Who knows what the time frame is? It will be very volatile, and and, this, and the time between now and then will be very volatile. That's what happened with gold. We've talked about that during the sixties and seventies. Gold was the best performing asset period, but it was incredibly volatile. And the reason on all these things is, is because of the, you know, the, the Fed being in a box during that time, uh, you know, the, the changes in the debt jubilees that happened, right? All the things that we talk about. And that's, I think, where we're heading broadly again. This time, you need to throw another name into that gold kind of uh, bin, and that's Bitcoin. And the reason you need to call throw Bitcoin into that bin is because gold is just based on what people value it. And Bitcoin's just based on what people, whether they want to buy it or not. And the entity that we keep talking about, millennials who are driving the political force that's behind this, they will, they like Bitcoin. It's that simple. They, they see it as a store of value. So in the short term, you know, is it a surprise that there continues to be more introduction of infrastructure and you know, more listing of, uh, of accessibility, which then brings in more volume and that leads to higher prices. Yeah, no, but you better believe it's going to be very volatile um, on the way. And I expect both gold and Bitcoin to be very good performers in this period, but very, very, very volatile. And the way to play it, as we've been saying, is to own calls in these, in these, um, these products, regardless of how expensive those calls are. They will continue to print and uh, they will continue to give you the the ability to add into the volatile pullbacks, which you also invariably see. So I think uh, whether you believe in Bitcoin long run, I am not a, I think there are massive structural headwinds. We've talked about that on here uh, to, to Bitcoin over much longer periods. I think eventually government will, will much like Nixon, you know, got rid of gold, not allow uh, themselves to be hemmed in by, by, um, 
by Bitcoin uh, and they'll have a, a, a certain amount of activism against some regulation, which I think will hurt its value long term. Um, but that doesn't matter. Uh, much like we're talking about mean stocks, if there are more buyers than sellers, you know, get out of the way. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. You just uh, threw in uh, the word Japan there in 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 your comments. Uh, that was actually going to be my last point because I wasn't quite sure where you're going to go with the uh, with the U.S. debt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But of course, Japan has been a big supporter buyer of U.S. debt and other debt, including and of course their own as well. But I did notice uh, again in a in a headline from Bloomberg uh, this morning actually. Uh, that one of the BOJ people, uh, Hajimi Takata, I think he was called, that he has sent a pretty strong signal for the case of negative interest policy uh, coming to an end uh, in Japan and maybe even as early as, as April. And of course, that that is interesting um, because of their status as the largest creditor nation in the world because at some point maybe they will simply find enough yield, as low as it may be, but enough for their purposes uh, in the domestic JDP markets, uh, which they haven't been able to find for a very long time. And of course, this month was also, let's not forget, the year where the Nikkei came out of a 35-year drawdown. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's been a it's been a wild, you know, this is the Japanese market, you know, for us, I've been in this business for 25 years has been uh, kind of the, everybody had to give up with it, give up on it. It, it just got uh, so bad for so long that nobody wanted to even watch it. And then, uh, except for Warren Buffett, you know, what timing, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, look, the, this comes out of a bigger macro framework as well. You know, if China's been the trade of the last 40 years and Japan's been the kind of hurt by some of that ascendancy in other ways, right? Not to mention having to work through their own debt and everything else. Um, what happens with the move away from uh, the, the connection between China and the U.S.? Um, uh, you know, there is there's a need for uh, China to also move towards technology because they're losing a demographic edge. Uh, and uh, there's a vested interest in the U.S. and the West to broadly support Japan and and uh, you know supports economy uh, militarily, all the things we've talked about. And I think um, I think some of the you know, power is power at the end. In countries in power tend to outperform once they uh, And there is a vested interest in the in the Western world to support Japan in this current regime. And as a source of power, and so um, I think Japan, uh, having now gone through and monetized the you know overall majority of their debt, um, sits in a much more kind of healthy position economically, and now is also getting a lot of tailwinds. So I think it's a it's it's a great story, and I, I would argue that it's a you know you have to be kind of bullish of of that um, of that trend, despite valuations or anything else you look at. It has a lot of tailwinds. Speaking of power, I actually started uh, listening to uh, uh, one of our previous guests that you and I speak uh, spoke to uh, a while back, two years back, uh, Peter Zion. He came up with an updated version of one of his books uh, recently. I'm working my way through that. Oh boy, there's definitely going to be some countries with a lot of power, and there's going to be a lot of countries with very little power, uh, according to his view. Let's hope 
maybe Jim and I can get him back to talk about that. You and I actually are going to also be talking in the next six weeks. We're going to be recording with a couple of previous guests, uh, and that's more in the global macro uh, world, and that's going to be super exciting. So uh, people should uh, pay attention to when they come out uh, over the next uh, six to eight weeks. Jim, this was uh, amazing, as usual. Uh, Anything you want to leave our audience with before we wrap up? Or do you think we did a pretty good job sticking to the talking points we've... I think we covered a lot of great points today. I think the last thing I'll say, I'll touch on what you just said about geopolitics. We've kind of stopped talking about geopolitics, you know, much less in the last uh, nine months or so, right? There's just as much going on. We're just talking. But I would say that some of that is because of the placidity that comes naturally during an election, coming election cycle. Um, people are kind of a wait and see mode. Nobody wants to make any big moves, but until they know who's going to be president or what's going to happen, I do think 2025 is going to be a very geopolitically big year, um, not to mention a big year for more and so the, we've kind of talked through the election year and we haven't kind of given any hints as to what lays on the other side. But I think it's important. Uh, I think when you see market a ball up and all those things we're talking about this year, the reason you do that as well, because 2025 sits out there with a big potential fat left tail. And whether that move begins to happen in late 2024 or really more likely in 2025 itself, I think you kind of start you know, preparing for that um, into this bowl bull market that we're likely to see this year yeah well that is definitely a teaser and a reason for people to uh, keep listening i think uh, what's coming in the next many months uh, will be uh, eye-opening and hopefully help people navigate what is definitely a fourth turning that we know is not going to be over anytime soon next week i have rob back so that's going to be fun. Um, different topics, of course, but uh, no doubt uh, there'll be some thought-provoking stuff. If you have any questions for Rob, uh, feel free to email them to info at toptradersonplug.com. If you enjoy these conversations in general, if you want to say a big thank you for Jim for putting these talking points together, um, go to um, whatever podcast platform you prefer to listen to and leave a rating and review and um, a hello to, uh, or a thank you, I should say, to Jim and all the work that he puts into this. From Jim and I, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of each other and take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.